It's time for today's episode of the College Recruiting Weekly Podcast with your host, a man who's asking for your vote for county coroner and America's college recruiting guru, Dan Tudor. Hey, Coach. How are you doing? It's Dan. Great to have you on the show today. It's a special one. It is the season three finale of the College Recruiting Weekly Podcast. Hard to believe that we've had three full years of, uh, of this conversation, all the different coaches, all the guests we've had, all the topics we have had the chance to cover, and so appreciate uh, your comments and what you're getting out of this this show, because it's for you, Coach. This is why we do it, and I'm glad that it's helping. Uh, please continue to tell everybody uh, as we uh, move into Season 4 after the summer of 2019 is, uh, is wrapped up. We will... Uh, be on to season four, but we have a big show today uh, as we wrap up the third season. It is a conversation with with uh, Tom Park, and if you don't know the name, and, and many of you don't because he's been out of coaching for a while, but this man that you're about to get to listen to today, I've been privileged to call uh, a friend for over a decade, and this is an incredible coach and an incredible human being. And what a resource he is for college coaches. Uh, he gives of his time. He is willing to talk to any coach and give them advice. Um, he is involved in representing coaches at the highest level um, in uh, professional and college athletics, uh, helping negotiate contracts. He has been a speaker at uh, several of our national collegiate recruiting conferences and is one of the most requested people uh, that, that we get when it comes to uh, that conference, uh, which, by the way, is coming up this summer, and you should be there. If you can find more details about that at dantutor.com. That's a little tangent uh, that, uh, that I just dove into. But this conversation with Tom Park is important because the topic is basically if you're rebuilding a program or you are are in the middle of redesigning your coaching career, this is a conversation that you'll want to have with, with Tom. You'll want to listen to because – he was involved in what some consider the greatest turnaround in college football history. And he'll get into more about what exactly he and the staff that he was a part of did. And he did this as a new recruiting coordinator, fresh out of the Marines in his mid-20s. So many of you as coaches, you're listening to this and you're at the start of your coaching career and you're looking for your first break. Well, well, Tom Park had it at a very early age and uh, had it in a, in a way that just doesn't happen much anymore. This is back in the 1970s when he had this opportunity to, to take over recruiting and be the recruiting coordinator um, uh, in, a, uh, in a program that uh, was desperately in need of a turnaround. And he helped engineer that turnaround and uh, went on to have – um, a really good career in college athletics and now in business and advising and consulting. And so I thought this is a great way to wrap up the third season of the College Recruiting Weekly Podcast because many of you, as you head into the summer, into the off season, you're trying to figure out how do we turn this thing around or how do I establish myself as a better coach within the staff that I'm at or I want that next job. How do I get that next job? What What are some things that could set me apart and coach, I think you're going to love the conversation because you're going to get answers to a lot of those questions or, or at least a roadmap for how it worked for 
for Tom Park. So that's what we're going to go into today. And we started the conversation with Tom. Uh, very basically, I just wanted to have him give a brief history of who he is, uh, where he's been, who he's worked with. Um, it started, I'll, I'll be honest with you, it started as a simple question. Uh, you'll see in the answer you're about to listen to when I asked him that question, uh, as he s- quickly skims over his uh, his coaching career, how uh, what an amazing uh, group of people he had a chance to work with and some of the people he calls friends and the experiences he had. So just sit back and listen and uh, tell your friends to listen to this great conversation with Dr. Tom Park, a great coach who can teach you some things about rebuilding your career, rebuilding a program, turning things around. And again, we started with his background as a college coach. Well, Dan, uh, it's it's great to be with you again. You're you're a good friend, and and I just love what you do for the coaching profession. I was very fortunate. Uh, like like most coaches, you start out as a, as a player of whatever game you coach. And I I played eleven seasons of football, and I started in 1958 as a 12 year old playing seventh grade, and uh, and so I loved the game. And and then I went in the Marine Corps during Vietnam after college, and I got to coach in the Marine Corps, and when I came back from Southeast Asia, uh, the Maryland program was in, in real disarray. Um, in 1971, they lost all their games. I think they were 110th in the NCAA Division I rankings, which I think was last that year, if I'm wow. correct. Wow. And, and so Coach Jerry Claiborne, who had been Bear Bryant's number two at the Texas A&M, the Junction Boys, and the Desert Team, and then his uh, number two at uh, at Alabama, Coach Claiborne had played safety for Bear Bryant at Kentucky, class of 50. He was a patriot, and he'd been the head coach at Virginia Tech for 10 years, and he got the Maryland job. We had a great AD in Jim Keough. And so here here I get out of the Marine Corps, and a guy named Les Steckel, who became uh, uh, the, the uh, CEO of the Fellowship of Christian Athletes for the past 10 years, he just retired, Les had been trying to get, he played for me at Quantico, where we had a football team, and I was the offense coordinator. And so Les and I were friends who were both Marine officers from, from the Vietnam experience, and he was trying to get on as a GA somewhere, and so was I. So I ended up recommending him to Eddie Crowder at Colorado, who I met at the coaches' convention, and he recommended me to Jerry Claiborne. And so we helped get each other our jobs. We got started together. It's kind of fun, you know? Yeah. So, so, so Coach Claiborne was a Patriot, so I went on as a graduate assistant in 72 and got to coach the defensive front and got to teach Randy White the head slap, which he got so good at his eighth year at Dallas, they banned it in the NFL. He was unbelievable and a great player. He's in the Hall of Fame. And as a result of that experience, Coach Claiborne, the head recruiter of the football team, had been a World War II veteran and he had to retire. He was getting older and, and his injuries from Italy, the Italian campaign. So anyway, Coach Claiborne offers me the head recruiter job. I'm 26 years old. And, uh, I mean, it was a great opportunity. And so I, I think if you can work for a great coach and you've got a great AD and Jim Keough, which we had, uh, it was an opportunity for me to try to take probably my organizational skills and my sales skills uh, relational skills uh, to a football program, and we did a few things there with the with the great fertile field that Maryland represented. I, I looked at a study of the trailing fifty years, 
And Maryland had won the national championship in either 52 or 53. I may have that, whichever year it was. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so they had the platform to do it. And if you do it once, you can do it again. So, you know, several teams, Texas, Oklahoma, uh, Penn State, I mean, others had won the national championship. I think Penn State had. I know they did it later. But um, they had proved that they could do it, so if they could do it once, they could do it again. So the program had regressed to the state it was in. Uh, we came in our first year in 72, went 5-5-1. Five, five and one. Uh, Lou Holtz was brand new at North Carolina State, so that was a great rivalry. Um, and uh, we slowly won three, ACC, uh, three consecutive ACC titles, 21 straight ACC games, four consecutive bowls, and in 76, end up 11-0. and 0 in the Cotton Bowl, competing for the national championship. If we'd have won that against Houston and Pitt with uh, Tony Dorsett had lost the Gator, we probably would have backed into the national championship. So it was the greatest turnaround in NCAA Division I football history that I know of, and we did it trying to follow the rules and being honest and being ethical. And one of the things that we did when I got hired, Coach Claiborne handed me about a 25-page paper from Dr. Rooney at Oklahoma State, who was a demographer. And he had analyzed, Dan, the entire United States by county. And I think there were like 4,400 counties. Somebody will Google that. Don't find it. Maybe right or wrong. It's close. But it's where every one of the great players came from. I mean, the man had it figured out. He wanted to write a book with me in the 1980s when I was doing my PhD, and I said, Dr. Rooney, I just don't have time to write two books at a time. But he was a master at demographics, and we built our program around the demographics of a 300-mile circle drawn around College Park, Maryland, in which we figured there were 30 million people, and in any given year, if you extracted your share of the great football players, you could win a national championship. And so it was five hours driving distance, so parents could drive to campus, come to the games, you know, about 300-mile uh, radius uh, uh, or di- diameter, if you would. I, no, it was a radius, 300-mile uh, radius. And, and that was a very intelligent thing to do from a population center because we had the eastern demographic, Philadelphia. If you look at New England, Dan, there's only two major teams, Boston College and Syracuse. you got six states in New England. So that's fair game because Boston really has a lot of players. But we didn't exploit it as well as we should have. But we did do a, a really good job in Pennsylvania where, of course, you got Pitt, Penn State, and us. And actually, here's an interesting tidbit. Joe Paterno, who I have great respect for and got to know personally, uh, Joe Paterno actually hired uh, a head recruiter and never had one historically there because of the job we did. In other words, he realized, i got to do something because Maryland's coming up here and taking players from us. So it was a, it was a great time in my life, and, and uh, it, I got to work for great people. Um, we, uh, you know, we'd start every year with 1,500 prospects on the books. We had, we had four coaches in Pennsylvania. We split it by quarters. Uh, we organized the, the ground, the territory, extremely well uh, so we know who had what territory. It's like building a sales territory, right? Mm-hmm. And right. we'd start with 1,500 prospects. We'd end up visiting about 90, would visit, make official visits. We'd sign 30. Uh, one of the things that is important to do is, is you look at your existing roster and you go, 
how many quarterbacks, how many centers, how many tight ends, what's our offense, what's our defense, you know, and figure all that out. So if, if you had coaches, you had a great tight end in Pennsylvania, you had one down in North Carolina, uh, and you'd say, well, we could only sign one of them, which is the best. I think we did that very well internally. And programs have to have a decision-making process that's effective. And so ours was, ours was, and this is kind of intuitive, but ours was, the coach with the geography, that was his recruiting area, the coach that coached the position, the head coach and myself. So about four people would have inputs. And of course, the head coach has got 10 votes. You know, it's up to him. But, but, but honestly, that system of of breaking ties and disagreements, because coaches will argue, you know, with great enthusiasm because they work so hard to go out and cultivate a family. And then, like we had John Devlin, the great defense coordinator in Southeast Pennsylvania. And John and I were dear friends, and I was from Hershey, so we, we loved that area of the country, and we'd recruit together sometimes. And John was a man of great passion. Well, he, some of the hardest calls he ever made were to call a mother and tell her that we had to turn down her son. I mean, I've seen the man sit at his desk and almost weep making those phone calls. And so, you know, uh, you have to have a process where the decision-making in a group that's very competitive is fair and equitable and intelligent and ends up with the best yield. And I think we did, we did that very well. Uh, and let, let me stop and see if I've generated a question. Yeah, or two here. Oh, just about 38 or 39 questions have come to mind so far. So, um, <laughs> so let, me, let me go back. I mean, let's sort of break this down before we get on no. to the rest of it. Yeah. Um, first of all, I, I've known you for over a decade. I don't think I've ever said to you, thank you for your service. Oh, so thank, thank you for you. your service. Mm-hmm. Um, number two, 26 years old, being brought in out of the Marine Corps to lead a Division One recruiting effort uh, at, at a, a you know, Division One school, but one that has struggled. That is a very uh, that that is not your typical the way that hiring is done now for for Division One football. And I, I guess my, my question was, at 26, was that an advantage, being so young and maybe not being so deeply rooted in, you know, here's how I've been trained to do this job, or, or was it a challenge being so young? Oh, that's a great question. It's great insight. Well, there were two of us that Coach was considering. One was Dick Shiner, who was a quarterback from Lebanon, and Dick and I talked about this later, but he was a great Maryland quarterback. And he was 38 and I was 26. So we were the two choices, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And Dick had played 14 years in the NFL as a bench quarterback. He was a backup most right. of his career. Well, Best the, the point, yeah, a safer job, right? Don't get right. beat up right. for that. Right. But, but anyway, so, so Coach goes with the younger guy. And I've, I've always reflected on how did I get that opportunity? And the reality is, Dan, I believe it was God's hand in my life somehow. Mm-hmm. Uh, because, because honestly, you'd think you'd go with someone more veteran and more experienced. But the point is, is we had a JV head coach named Dick Redding who'd been a carrier pilot in, in the Pacific, and he loved the Marine Corps, and he kind of lobbied for me because I was his JV defensive line coach. And the Silver Fox, who was Coach Claiborne's gray-haired guy on the staff, you know, every staff's got one of those, uh, I think I think his advocacy for me, and then I think one of my gifts is organization. And I, I'll never here's a great story for you. So I was living upstairs in Coldfield House, and 
uh, there, there was a, a restroom up there, and I was living in this this uh, this kind of squad bay for visiting coaches. And at night, I had nothing to do, so I made all the bunk beds like the Marine Corps bunks, where you could bounce a quarter off of them. Right. And I just did that. And so one day, Coach Claiborne went up in the men's room. And he stuck his head in where I lived, and he saw that. And 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 he brought all the coaches, he brought the whole coaching staff upstairs and showed it to him. He said, look what this young man has done. Uh, and, and I mean, that, that was the kind of thing that he recognized. The other thing I did is at midnight, I'd be organizing the newspapers for the staff because in those days, you'd subscribe to the Pittsburgh Gazette and the Cleveland Plain Dealer and different newspapers in these different geographies, and you'd cut out articles like Jimmy Seflo, great running back at Penn State. Jimmy Seflo, uh, Wilkes-Barre newspaper. I cut out all this stuff at night. So, honestly, I worked like a dog. And I think the work ethic was a big reason they hired me because I worked insanely. I was single. I loved the game. Um, I, I loved the opportunity. when they hired you. They, they didn't, but they, they, they all watched the way this young GA cut their newspapers for them. Wow. Okay. And, and they all said in the staff room, this guy is amazing. Because I put all those clippings on each coach's desk, and they'd come in and they'd be on their desk. And it really helped them because then they, the secretary would put a clipping of Jimmy Seflo in an envelope. The coach writes one and mail it to him. So, I mean, I began to do things that organized and automated and used the tools of the day, which we, we don't have. I mean, we're different now. Technology, as you know better than I. I mean, it's all changed. But we sent calendars. I, I'll never forget this. We, we'd send calendars, Maryland calendars, to every high school I mean, we'd send out 11, 1,500 calendars every season in August. I did that whole thing myself, and I'd have a truck back up, and we'd mail calendars, and I'd walk into a high school in, uh, in uh, Philadelphia, and there'd be a Maryland calendar on the wall. I sent it to those people. You know, wow. So yeah. it was the tools of the day. It was sales 101. It was communicate with your market, make friends of your coaches. I mean, just the stuff that if you were selling ice cream or widgets, same kind of ideas. And uh, I don't know, I'm, I'm going so, on here. So, so, you, so you would say that being that age and coming in with limited experience was a, was a plus for you. It ended up being I, an advantage. Well, I think so. And interestingly enough, when we built the Quantico team, the year uh, 71, I was the offensive coordinator because I coached in the Far Eastern League when I was in Southeast Asia. Um, they, uh, we were coming out of Vietnam, and the colonel said to me, said, Lieutenant, I know you wanted to go down in-country and earn a bronze star and a purple heart and all that stuff, but he said, I'm going to give you a better job. I'm going to let you coach a football team. So I started coaching, you know, in Okinawa, and that was a great start for me. And, again, that's God's hand in my life. Because yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. when I look at that, that 55,000 black wall in Washington, D.C. about Vietnam, I, I weep, all right? So I got protected, and that was God's grace, because my mom right. said she pray, prayed for me every day. So honestly, so getting started that way and then, and then coming back, um, I think when we recruited the whole country for Quantico and ended up in 71 with the number three passing offense in college football, uh, it's because we'd recruited every Marine Corps base. So I really had a run at recruiting the whole country the year before, and maybe Claiborne knew about that. I can't remember. But anyway, it was things like that that got me that job when I never should have gotten a job at age 26. You know, it just doesn't, so, doesn't work that way. 
you brought up was was work ethic. Um, so can you compare what you were willing to do? And not that that coaches now aren't willing to do it, but there is it's a different generation and it's a different um, different time. And sometimes you know, that attention to detail, you know, walking mm-hmm. up and he noticed the way your room was organized and the way that mm-hmm. you operated when no one was looking. And I'm just wondering, just do, do you, is that one of the differences between the time you grew up in and you were a part of versus now? And, you know, that, look, there's plenty of, of hardworking, dedicated mm-hmm. coaches now that, that put in great hours, but that, that attitude of being excellent while no one was looking, uh, what, mm-hmm. just can you just talk about that a little bit? Yeah. Well, as, as a grandfather of seven grandchildren, you know, I don't want to be the guy that says our generation, the greatest generation before us or any of that. But the reality is coaches are always, as you know, Dan, because you were a coach, coaches are always hardworking people. But, right. uh, you know, I, I do think that you can differentiate yourself. And I think part of working hard is also working smart, okay? And I would like to believe that that's an important characteristic is – Using the tools that you have, whatever they are, today it's the Internet, it's technology. I've watched you do that and what you do. I mean, par excellent, right? So using the tools that you have and then just outworking the other people. I mean, I I, I said for years I've given speeches for you and other people, you know, uh, and I've said, look, uh, the lazy coaches work 95 hours a week. The, the, The hardworking guys are 105. Everybody works 100 during the season, right? And then what they do in the off season. So again, you know, Bill Parcells has a great one. He says, 365 days a year, pick a day, pick an hour. I'll tell you what I'll be doing. Now, Parcells is a, is a, he's a, he's a crazy man. And Mike Sweatman, a defense coordinator, Quantico worked for him for two Super Bowls at the Giants. So Parcells has a great work ethic. Okay. So I think you got to have that. But I think you got to work very smart because coaches always complain, in football at least, about we sit in the staff room, we could be going home, and we're sitting there looking at each other not doing anything. Well, that's not working smart, okay? Right. So it gets down to things just like in business and industry, just like anything. Leadership is critical, okay? And if you've got an intelligent, uh, uh, sensitive, relational, organized leader, it makes all the difference in the world. And I was fortunate to have one, and I guess he recognized things in me. I've reflected on what did he see in me that he gave me that opportunity. Uh, and I just, I, I was blessed, you know, and it worked. I mean, it worked. Right. Okay, <laughs> yeah. so you've mentioned also as a part of the key to this turnaround that you were involved with, and we'll dig into that a little bit more here in a second, but you mentioned a couple of times, you just did again, organization and working smarter <laughs> not harder, um, or certainly smarter as equally as as hard as you work. And I'm just wondering, uh, you did it with the tools that you have, uh, uh, that you had back then. In working smarter now, what what do you see coaches doing or not doing that that end up hurting their their chances at not only building a a winning team, but just building a good long-term career in college coaching? When it comes to the the organizational side of things, because I think uh, my little commentary on it that I've talked to coaches a lot about is I think most people get into coaching because they love their sport. They love the idea of 
molding you know young lives. Certainly, you know us mm-hmm. in football as coaches, we love the strategy and the the, the battle mm-hmm. of it and and that mm-hmm. aspect. That's why you like coaching. That's why it's fun, quote unquote, to coach. But mm-hmm. then you have the other side of it, which is the organizational side, the recruiting mm-hmm. side, the mm-hmm. the thing mm-hmm. that makes you successful in industry to industry. Uh, mm-hmm. Can you just talk a little bit about what you see and have seen over the years coaches do ineffectively that have ended up hurting either their programs or them in their careers? Mm-hmm. Well, uh, evaluation of personnel is very, very important. And some people Again, are coaching very, personnel or uh, no, no, the a, or, or a, athletic talent, Got athletic it. talent. And I talked earlier about the decision-making process of who to take. Now, I've also said, you've probably heard me say, that uh, the quantitatives of personnel are easier to evaluate than the qualitatives, but the truth lies in the qualitatives. So the person, I had, as you know, I've got three degrees in psychology and I've got all that kind of education. I always felt, they used to say about Bear Bryant, Dan, he could look inside your soul and figure out who the winners were. And I've heard Coach Claiborne, one of the great things for a young coach is to be in a staff room with a Jerry Claiborne and his staff and listen to the stories, you know, where he talks about Bear Bryant, go out a cotton field with a white short sleeve shirt on and that checkered hat and wear a tie when it was 104 degrees. I mean, that's, that's pretty special, right? And so, you know, to listen to those kind of stories as a youth, in the game coming up. I mean, I can still tell them, and I'm 73. But I guess where I'm going with this is hard work applied intelligently. Now, we, we build a letter series. All right, so today, you know, and to, to your question, I think leveraging technology today and leveraging the use of communicative tools, which I think you do so well in what you do, and being able to give that information to others and to be able to talk to people relationally. Kids sign scholarships for all kinds of reasons. I had a four-celled matrix, good decision, bad decision, rational decision, irrational decision, right? It's a four-celled matrix. And what you got to do is get the young person to make a good decision for him and his family and base it on rational things like quality of education, degree, field, what do you want to do, and all those kind of things. And I think try to steer people to make good decisions for them. And if you can do that, their parents can see it. And and they now, the best story I can tell you is on the wall of my office today is a Sports Illustrated plaque of Mark Mangus, quarterback from Cumberland, Maryland, who was recruited by over 100 schools. He was one of the best in the country. I turned down, we turned down Joe Montana to take Mark Mangus. Montana was six foot, three quarter inch, 174 pounds, Western Pennsylvania, all WPIL, couldn't run the speed option well, wasn't big enough, was a 4.9, right? Four Super Bowls with Bill Walsh, the genius. We signed Mark Mangus, who 100 schools wanted, and he was 6'3", 218, ran a 4.7, could run the speed option, took us to the Cotton Bowl. Good choice. Montana was a later developer. He almost didn't start at Notre Dame. And I was part of saying, hey, to the Silver Fox, I said, Fox, I think we ought to take Mangus. Uh, Fox says to me, you better believe we're going to take Mangus. Well, he's on the wall of my office. He should have been in the, in the Hall of Fame. That's another story. But, but the point is, is those discernments at 
that point in time, and that gets us into a whole area of player development and picking people that have 90% of their talent or 90% of their uh, 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 accomplished talent in front of them, not behind them. It's easy to sign a guy that 90% of it's done. He's got 10% left. You want to sign somebody that's 50-50. He's got plenty in front of him. And we did that with Mangus. And, of course, having a key quarterback is critical because the quarterback is so much a component of the offense. Now, I think I'm drifting from this question a little bit here. Uh, get me back on course. Yeah, well, that's nice. You brought, brought up another three or four things that now uh, that now I want to um, I want to ask about. And and so going to that decision making metric matrix mm-hmm. that you used, mm-hmm. and obviously that got applied at Maryland, mm-hmm. um, and and was part of the success there. The thing that I find is that with this generation, especially now mm-hmm. with parents and club coaches and high school coaches more involved than ever mm-hmm. before is they don't make – usually it's not a rational decision that they make. Mm-hmm. It's based mm-hmm. on emotion or fear or, um, mm-hmm. or you know, certainly in football, um, who's going to – you know, who, who is going to bring me the most um, potential either future benefit or who's going to – what's going to impress people the most right now when I do my signing ceremony or announce it on Twitter – um, mm-hmm. You know, if I announce that I'm going to um, a, a Big Ten school that finished in the top three that previous season, mm-hmm. even though I'm not going to play a lot, maybe ever, it's, it, so it sounds better to do that versus going on, you know, and walking or not walking on, but getting the, the partial scholarship uh, at the Division two school and starting mm-hmm. right away because no one's heard of the Division two school. So mm-hmm. I see a lot of a lot of families now making making irrational decisions. And so mm-hmm. how I sort of merge the two, Coach, is mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I will, you know, I will say you need to almost plan for and strategize around the illogical decision because it's mm-hmm. there. It's almost impossible to get away from. There's always exceptions to the rule, but it's mm-hmm. so impossible to get away from in mass that um, I don't see a lot of kids making rational mm-hmm. decisions based on the 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 argument or the, the sales message that the coach has sent mm-hmm. out. So your, your thoughts on, on that, that it's just it, the, the generation is so different than it was uh, in the 70s. Yeah, you, you, well, you're right. And, and what you may remember is I was blessed enough to have a son that was a three-time All-Florida quarterback and was player of the year in the state of Florida. And so Clint Park, our son, who played 13 seasons, uh, ended up being recruited by 100 schools. And it's funny because half the coaches are called. I knew them personally, you know. And so we, I went through this not only as a coach, I went through it as a dad at 20 years later in the 90s. And, of course, Clint had a great career. But um, uh, when we try to help our son figure out where to go, he ends up going to the Naval Academy. And he didn't stay there. He ended up transferring to Villanova and made academic All-American in 96. He finished behind Peyton Manning and Danny Warfel for GT academic All-American. Had a great career, you know, 13 seasons. So as a dad, I'm very proud of Clint. Well, he was a real smart kid, uh, you know, was salutatorian of his high school class, North Florida Christian. And Clint really uh, was so mature we could let him uh, carry the lion's share of the analysis, which he did quite well. And um, so every player, every student athlete is a senior in high school. 
obviously has certain gifts and talents and maturities himself. We happen to have a great one in the family, and you could delegate a lot of that as a parent. The problem with some of the minority families is there's no dad, uh, mom doesn't know the first thing about it, and the son gets swayed by forces that sometimes are illegal. And that, that's, well, yeah, that's, the group, the group around them, and 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 you see that a lot too, um, irrespective of of racial background. You see it just with first generation college students in general a lot. At least I do. Right. Right. Yeah. And 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 so yeah, you travel all that ground. But um, uh, I think I think you know if you have a dad uh, that knows something about sports as I did. It's still a, a, a crapshoot in a number of ways because people make right decisions for wrong reasons. Uh, people make decisions because their girlfriend goes there. I mean, there's any number of things that can get the train off the rails. And, uh, you know, I did a study at Maryland our fourth year there, my fourth year's head recruiter, and I looked at our retention rates. In other words, of the class we signed, how many of them got the, uh, the fourth year out or the fifth year out and graduated? And we had a pretty good retention rate, which means our selection, our choices were pretty good choices, and recruited more people for the right reasons, and people made the right choices for the right reasons than the wrong reasons. I think in a long-term recruiting perspective, that's very important. The problem today, of course, is it is that the job has, of coaching has been so monetized that you got head coaches changing jobs every 2.7 years. That's been going on for a long time. And, and because of the money that's now entered in the payrolls of the D1A schools, you, you, you've got a lot of independence of the coordinators and the staffers that seem to be driven more than our generation and the generations before us in coaching by the salaries and the money. Uh, and that, that's a thing that I hear people, Dan, talk about a lot is there's so much money in it now. Um, and uh, I think that's changed some of the makeups of your staffs a little bit, your loyalty, some of those traditional things. I'm drifting again. Get me back on hey. course here. <laughs> well, I want to I go back to what you talked about earlier and the way that you started to um, develop your plan of attack at Maryland. Mm -hmm. And, you know, looking at, you, you started with, you know, the available studies that you had, which mm -hmm. was the study that you referenced uh, at the beginning mm -hmm. of the conversation. And I'm just wondering, the decision, that, that's not an unintentional decision. That has to be a staff thing. Your head coach has to agree with that. And I find mm -hmm. the minority of coaching staffs out there actually have that kind of a defined plan in place. Uh, really any plan. They know they have to go out and get good kids, so here's the camps or the tournaments we're going to go to to, to get mm -hmm. them. But beyond that, mm -hmm. there's not a, there is no, and I hate to use the, you know, the term a mission statement, there's no, there's no definition of here is, here's where we're going to recruit, here's the type mm -hmm. of kid, here's how we break mm -hmm. the tie. You know, there, there's not those, those plans in place. And I'm just wondering, can you take us sort of inside what drove that decision making and to do it mm -hmm. that way and the the benefits that you saw from it that mm -hmm. maybe other staffs um, struggled mm -hmm. with in trying to make the so, same kind of decisions. Well, again, what were the tools of the day? We had telephone, letter, and visit. So uh, today you got 
Twitter, email, you know, Instagram, you got any number of other things. So the conduits to communicate with the student athlete and actually build a relationship in the 70s were only three, mail, phone call, personal visit. And as you know, later the NCA limited the personal visits to three times because, that, you know, people with the money were spending more money to visit more often, right? And then on national signing date, as you remember the, the old stories, is five or six head coaches would show up at the star's house, right? And, and, and that was always interesting when Woody Hayes got left in the car, right? So, you know, all of that. So the tools of the day then, the tools of the day. Now, how that's changed is with the Internet now, people are signing players from foreign countries because of the reach of technology. So I think... You know, we did not have that, so what we did with the tools we had, which are 300-mile driving distance, ability to visit, building a, a territory, having enough uh, uh, enough yield in that territory to be able to work within it. I mean, we just, if we recruited a guy from California, it's because he wrote to us. We just didn't do it, right? Well, today that's different because of technology. And so now coaches, if they really sit down and think through their process, uh, they can lever technology and and have a farther geographical reach to to actually going overseas, which people today, as you know, are doing. Uh, that never we never dreamed of that fifty years ago, forty five years ago, whatever it was. So I think I think again, if your your tools dictate your tactics, it's just like military. Your tools dictate your tactics. Okay, so. Uh, I think because we were in a, a, a rich demographic where historically the school had won a national championship, if we got it organized, which we were, I think, I mean, if anybody said anything about Tom Park over the years, it's his organization is probably a big key to my success and our success. And that was a gift that I just happened to have. Uh, and then just, you know, working real hard and being smart about allocating scholarships. Uh, the, the, the key stand about... Uh, evaluating personnel. And let me get back to qualitatives. I think that's very, very important. You know, I was going down the story about Bear Bryant, Beaver, the pick winners and losers. I think attitudes, qualitatives, um, and, and understanding the motives of why people want to do what they want to do in terms of hiring practices, scholarshiping practices, that's critical. And that takes discernment, wisdom, and judgment. And I think we had a staff of people that had enough of that that we made pretty good choices. Um, and uh, you know, one thing we did with the tools of the day is we had a letter series. So, you know, I'm a guy that went to an Ivy League school, so I can write, you know. And so I, I composed off of what I inherited a letter series of about 10 letters that our secretary, Linda Kubani, who was fabulous, is gone now. Uh, but Linda and I were teammates, and we 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 bust the post office. I mean, and I never got a budget from the ads. He let me do it, but we wrote these letters, and we'd have ten of them, and we had, you know, we'd get one in maybe in July, get ready for the season, one in August, and through the season. And uh, I rewrote all that stuff, and I think to this day I've had people drudge that up and say, "Boy, you really had some good mail." But, but the point is, now today, kids, as you know, about 10 years ago, some of the stars have got boxes full of letters from coaches. So, again, right. when everybody starts doing it, then it becomes a less effective tool, and you've got to think of something else. Now, one of the things about coaching today that I hear 
is coaches are sitting there breaking down film or, you know, trying to do their tactics for a game week, and they're sitting there with a handheld doing technology texting with prospects. Uh, and, and so, you know, technology has become both a curse and a blessing because it gives you a farther reach, but the coaches have got to dedicate more and more uh, time to using technology because it, it cuts both ways. It, you can do it. You can never stop, right? So, right. Right. Okay. So, so in this is going to be a challenging question, but I want to kind of wrap up the conversation with two main thoughts. Um, mm-hmm. Because as a part of this turnaround, the key to it was organizational planning. We've been talking about that. Mm-hmm. Um, so one of my questions is, if you were to um, be a part of a program now, you had the same challenge. Come in and help us help us coach uh organize things we need to we need to have this turnaround you've done it before what would you do in the current climate if you were in charge of rebuilding reorganizing a program knowing the coaches that you know and being an, an observer of kind of how coaching has evolved at the college level well how mm-hmm. would you go in and do it um mm-hmm. right now uh, that's a really good question well you know i live uh, three miles from florida state and I, I know know a lot of those folks, and and uh, I've watched Florida State under Coach Bowden, and and uh, you know Coach Taggart currently, and Jimbo Fisher, and and gotten to know some of the people that run recruiting. Now the difference today from then is uh, the, the the budgets of the schools allow them to have legions of staff. That in in the days that we were doing it, you didn't have nearly as much budget and payroll to personnel people. I think somebody told me that one of the SEC schools, I was talking to a coach, had 35 people on the payroll just for personnel. It was like an NFL team, right? Right. And and so, uh, honestly, to compare then with now, you've got logistical capabilities today with people where every coach has a GA that works on helping him evaluate talent. We, we didn't have that. They've got that now with the big programs because there's enough money. So, uh, again, if you were to come in and do this again, which someone my age would never want to do, my wife would think I'd lost my mind, but, but <laughs> having done it once, but, but actually twice. And, you know, after Maryland, I, I took the head recruiter job at UConn, and we actually, that was the turnaround of UConn to become what it became and use similar principles. And then Tony Mason of Arizona wanted me to go out, Mike Godfrey called me, wanted me to go out and do Arizona. And I said twice is enough in a lifetime, and I turned that job down. But, but the point is, if you were coming in today, you'd have much larger financial resources, much larger staffs. It would be more NFL-like. It would certainly be leveraged through technology, and your reach would be international. Okay, and so now it becomes a matter of getting your staff again to be good evaluators, communicate well internally, have a good process of deciding who to take, who not to take, and allocating all those resources. So it becomes a bigger and bigger management job. Okay, uh, just like it's corporate, it's become more corporate. Uh, hopefully that's so, kind of, kind of an answer. You know, it, right. No, it does. And just to sort of build on that, um, the whole concept of breaking the tie. And mm-hmm. so you're you're on a staff and you see one one prospect and this other coach who went somewhere else says, well, my prospect in that position is just as good and the head coach has mm-hmm. his or her favorite. 
Mm-hmm. How, how would you? How would? How have you seen successful coaches when it comes to choosing prospects mm-hmm. do it correctly? Because what is the right way? You have to make your best guess, and but you mm-hmm. pointed out mm-hmm. that it is a lot more qualitative much of the time than quantitative. Uh, mm-hmm. Track mm-hmm. and swimming, which are time sports, you can be quantitative, but mm-hmm. the rest mm-hmm. is it's subjective, not objective. And so, how how would you recommend staffs come in and? Pick the best recruit the best way possible, yeah. um, having having no no real science or, or quantitative yeah. Yeah. measurement yeah. to go off of. Well, great, great question. And I, now I'm going to fall back to the quantitatives, despite okay. what I said about qualitatives. <laughs> in that you must you must have you must have a positional profile for every position. So in the NFL, if you got a 54 man roster. You got 11 on offense, 11 on defense, special teams. That's 33 people. College is similar, right? And then you've got your kickers and all that kind of thing. You have got to have for every position a quantitative profile of what you're looking for. Now, interesting article in Sports Illustrated, Dan, just within the last several weeks about the NFL going to outliers and say, you know, we used to turn down quarterbacks that were under 6'2 and 6'3, and now the, the guy uh, uh, at, uh, at uh, Seattle was 5'11 or something like that. And they were talking about taking more and more outliers who statistically were outside of the profile that every NFL team created, right? And so you, you have to rely on your profile and your quantitatives because that's what takes you to the bank. And then if you go to the qualitatives where you get into issues of character, competitiveness, uh, I mean, the, the whole idea that the guy will fight you to the death, you, you, you've got to talk to people to analyze if he has those characteristics, you know, uh, you know meet with him. I mean, it becomes a, jo- a job of discernment and judgment. So the quantitatives are extremely important from profiling standpoint, and those are things that generally are methods to avoid conflict on a staff because somebody's either inside the profile or he's not. And so now there's got to be something qualitatively that says, here's why a five foot 11 inch offensive guard. Now I remember one from Baltimore, the kid was five eleven. He weighed about two forty. You know, this is in the seventies again. He had tremendous flexibility. He was like a gymnast. And we argued over that guy and we eventually turned him down. And I think he had a pretty good career because he was an outlier. And so you're going to have some of those. And to keep peace in the staff room, you've got to have a defined profile, quantitative process that when you do have an outlier, there's something qualitative that makes him, that makes you as a group say, okay, we'll take a chance and transcend our profile. Does that make sense? Yeah. 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 Yeah, I think that's, that's, the way you, yeah, that's the way you keep getting better and better. Um, so last question, Coach, yeah, and yeah. before we wrap it up, is yeah. you have a lot of young coaches or or head coaches that have just taken over a program, uh, or or even there's you know number that listen to the podcast who are veteran coaches, but they are realizing I need to do this differently. This is a different generation. Uh, mm-hmm. Maybe I've I've lucked out just being at the right place at the right time with some of these. You know, some of the recruiting classes I've been able to get. So can you give us uh, your your words of wisdom, your advice on what these coaches should be doing as a part of their daily, sort of the non-coaching side of their jobs? Um, mm-hmm. what, what would your advice be in terms of how to get better and in this effort of building a great program or turning around a program? Mm-hmm. 
Well, I, I, I've said this for a long time to coaches, uh, is spend at least 10 or 15 minutes every day uh, communicating externally with someone in your profession and idea sharing. So you're constantly refreshing your mind on ideas that other coaches may have or be doing to help teach yourself and import those ideas into your own staff room. I think that's number one. And what that, that also does something else is in a very hazardous profession, by keeping your relationships alive with coaches in other places, in other leagues, in other areas, in other schools, uh, when you get fired or lose your job, you know more people than if you don't do that. And I, it's, a, it's, a, it's a brotherhood, it's a sisterhood in women's sports. You have to have relationships. I've seen so many coaches over the decades whose careers had good starts but they never became what they could have become because coach didn't work enough on. We call it networking in business, but it goes beyond networking. It's about relationship building and having friends that can idea share. Coaches are, are, are great sharers of ideas, whether it's tactics, strategies, weight technologies, diet, strength, running, whatever it is. Coaches love to do that. And they do that with their friends. And so every day a coach has spent 15 minutes doing that because it will serve your career very, very, very well if you do that. So, Yeah. And what about just in terms of internally at their program right now, just the best habits that you would see, that you would recommend they, they do that you've seen done by coaches that are successful over their careers? Mm. Well, I think you've got to walk the talk. You know, it's biblical. Um, walk the talk in terms of try to try to display a work ethic that's a role model for young people. Uh, I think coaches are, are are in a leadership position. They're influencers. Uh, I think uh, walking out the values of the program. Uh, you know, uh, as Coach Claiborne used to say, I think this is still on my desk down in my office. I'd rather see a sermon any day than hear one. And he said that. I'll never forget that. Uh, I, I started the FCA at Maryland, and, and he wrote my mother a letter one time, and it said, uh, Tom started the FCA. It's had a good in, impact on our team and our players, but I think the FCA's done more for Tom than Tom's done for the FCA. And that was, I was a, I was a youth. My mother showed me that letter. I mean, to this day, I think about that. I think, yes, that's exactly right. You know, so you're, if you're in a classy group of men or women and, and they're, they're, Coach Claiborne was a Christian. I'm a Christian. You know that. And you have that dimension of fellowship and brotherhood and sisterhood. Well, then you've got a higher standard. You've got to walk out to talk, and you've got to be a role model, and you've got to be what you say you are. And that, that spreads through the organization, and it influences the players. Because at the end of the day, Dan, you and I both know this, uh, at the end of the day, it all goes back in the box. And so what good did we do for young people while we were doing this? That's what coaching is all about. All right, Coach, I'll be honest with you. If you did not get at least seven or eight things that can immediately impact your college coaching career from that conversation, then you need to listen to it again because there is so much good stuff. I literally could have kept talking to uh, to Dr. Tom Park for another hour, uh, and maybe we'll pick that up uh, with more conversation with him 
as we get into season four uh, in, in upcoming episodes. But hopefully that helped. Hopefully it helped give you a, a springboard to having some conversations with your staff, with yourself, and reevaluating the way you th- do things. Or if you're in the middle of trying to turn around your coaching career or a program that you're involved with, you're trying to do things better. Maybe it can spark some ideas about what has worked before and now translating that into present day for your situation uh, and maybe reevaluating some things that, that you've done. So that's what we're here for, Coach. We are all dedicated to making sure you have the tools, the resources, the knowledge you need to be a fantastic college coach, a dominant recruiter, and just a better person overall as you manage this, this tough, tough career that you've chosen, being a college coach. So hope that helped. Thank you again for listening to the College Recruiting Weekly podcast. All the great comments that you've given have uh, have been wonderful. Uh, if you have topic suggestions for upcoming shows, the upcoming season, please get those to me, dan at dantutor.com. Always consider coming to our big summer event, the College Rec- uh, the uh, National Collegiate Recruiting Conference. Um, you can find out information on that on dantutor.com. Lots of resources on the website as well. 15 years of research articles, tips, techniques, and strategies that we outline that are there for the taking. Also, if you're looking to improve yourself as a college coach uh, while you have some time off, consider going through Tudor University. You can find that on the Dan Tudor website as well. It is an online learning module that many coaches go through, and they say that it really has changed the way that they uh, bring knowledge to recruiting and uh, has improved the way that they're able to go after recruits. So it's easy. It is insanely inexpensive and all done on your time. So uh, it's step-by-step learning modules that you can you can uh, self-pace and, and do self-learning with. And uh, it's another resource that we want to offer coaches. So that's it. Thank you again for listening. We'll be back with more. Coach, have a great summer. By the way, a lot of past podcast episodes that you may have missed. So you can go to iTunes, Google, or Stitcher to listen to those again and, uh, and improve your knowledge base as we get ready for another big year of coaching and recruiting, as well as another big year here at the College Recruiting Weekly Podcast. Have a great one, Coach. We'll talk to you soon again. Thank you.